I'm not going to play the music nope, unless nope, you want to sing it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I guess we're on the air. Yes, we are on the air. Good evening, and welcome to Peach State Pandemonium for Thursday, March 2nd, 2017. This is Michael Norris along with Bobby Simmons, Jerry Oates, and Jay West. How you guys doing this evening? I'm good, sir. Doing well. Well, we were uh, comparing notes on our condition, so... Uh... Uh, Mike and myself before we went on the air there, so I, I I I feel like I'm making good progress, and I'm glad to be here tonight. That's good, Jay. Good, good, good. Thank yeah, you. We uh, we are are doing well. Before we uh, our our guest uh, guest this evening, Richard Vitek, he's going to be calling in about eight twenty tonight. So, uh, and we'll discuss uh, his book about Dick the Bruiser, but. Uh, I have not heard any updates uh, for those of you that remember Ann Casey. Um, she had a heart yes. attack earlier this week and uh, was due to have surgery yesterday morning, I think. But I have not heard any more. I was keeping up through, through Mick Karch, and he hasn't updated anything lately on Facebook, so I'm not sure how she's doing. She, she evidently was not well enough for them to do surgery right away, but she had improved enough for them to go in and do do the surgery. So uh, um, I'm assuming that's what took place. I have not heard anything about it. And uh, speaking of heart surgery, and this has nothing to do with uh, um, the wrestling business, but anybody who is a um, fan of... Uh, soul music in the 60s, early 70s, who kept up with James Brown and the various members that, that passed through his world in those years will know the name Vicki Anderson. Vicki Anderson was, uh, or is, I shouldn't say was, is, um, the widow of, of my uh, godfather Bobby Bird, who was also mm-hmm. with James Brown for many, many years. And she is was a, is affectionately known as Mommy O to all of us because she she not only mothers everybody she'll beat your butt too if you don't <laughs> if you don't do what she says. But Mommy O had uh, had a triple bypass done um, uh, last week, and uh, she's doing well though. Came through it with flying colors, doing well. And uh, her, I've been <clears throat> keeping up with her through her. Uh, her family, which are all friends of mine on Facebook, but want to want to wish them well, and uh, hopefully, Ann and Casey. I know Ann was planning on being in Mobile this weekend, um, but she's not able to. Um, obviously, not going to be able to be there unless she makes one hell of a comeback. Um, Diane uh, von Hoffen, who was supposed to be in Mobile, evidently has, something has come up. She's not coming. Uh, but there's supposed to be some new faces, and it remains to be seen. Supposedly, Tony Rose is going to be there, for those of you that know lady wrestlers of the 60s and 70s. Uh, oh, yes. But Tony's supposed to make her her first uh, trip to Mobile, and Jerry Stubbs has been saying he's bringing Mike Stallings. Uh, but that remains to be seen. You know, It took Stubbs 10 years of saying he was coming every year before he <laughs> finally showed up, but... 
Well, I saw but he little, won something at the little giveaway thing uh, his first year, so he's been back ever since trying to trying to think, you know, he'll beat out <laughs> Charlie Smith to win something. Yeah, I seen earlier he posted he was eating he was eating in Mobile, so he's already down there. Who is? Uh, on, on, Stubby. Uh, Stubbs. Stubbs. Yeah. Uh, on, a, on a note that uh, for those of us that uh, our little get-togethers up here in Atlanta on a regular basis, uh, Bill Sellier, who is uh, a friend of ours, uh, uh, Bill's Bill's become very dear in my life. We talk quite a bit. Uh, his dad passed away Tuesday night. Oh man! Um, uh, he just celebrated his 100th birthday. I was going to say he was he was up there. Yeah, he was able to enjoy a 100th birthday party. Very alert. Very uh, life of the party. Uh, uh, and then very shortly after that, he developed pneumonia. Had to go into hospital and. Uh, they brought him out of the hospital Monday uh, and put him into hospice care, and he, he made it right at 24 hours. But uh, I talked to Bill today. Bill's doing very well. Bill, uh, it's one of those things where where it's 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 Bill was his sole Bill was an only child. Bill's in his 70s, and he tore his shoulder up having to manhandle him and pick him up. He just had shoulder surgery, so. It's been a it's been an ordeal taking care of his dad, but his dad his dad did finally succumb to the pneumonia. And, uh, just want to pass along our heartfelt uh, condolences to Bill Absolutely. and his family, and uh, they're going to have a private burial on Saturday. He said that uh, he wants everybody to remember his dad from the birthday party and and how uh, how vibrant he was. So he uh, Bill said he said for ten years he was going to live to be a hundred. He made it, so he was uh, he had a he had a peck of a life and. Uh, he made his goal. Yes, he did. Yes, he did. Uh, yeah, it's a, very, it's a very mixed. It's a very mixed emotional process when it's you know when your your father or your mother goes like that, and you're glad that they're not there anymore. But it's really yeah. hard. I told uh, I tell people this all the time in my in my role as as their pastor and their minister, and 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 I tell people all the time. Uh, it's a very hard thing when you when you do lose someone, you're very heartbroken over it, and then you emotionally whip yourself because you feel such a sense of relief. Yeah. But uh, you know, as I tell people, the the funeral, as hard as they are, that's the easy part. The hard part's living after it's over. And you're and, right. Um, you're right. It's it's uh, it's it's tough, but you know, uh, uh, it's I don't you know. It's part. It's as much yeah, a part of living as breathing is. We just have to. I, I saw on Bill's uh, on his Facebook page, you know, where Facebook what he put out, where he said his father had been put in the hospice, and that brought back memories for me of my father. He lasted five days in hospice, but uh, uh, I was, you know, I wasn't surprised when I saw the next day where he had passed. And uh, yeah. obviously, condolences to Bill and his family. Yeah. Yeah. My mom is under. We have her under hospice care, but it is for, it's not for end care. It's for ongoing stability care to make sure she takes her medicine and does the right. things she's supposed to. Uh, she, uh, a week ago Saturday, she, she choked, and they had to do the Heimlich maneuver on her and scared me to death, and it was a rough couple of days, but she's back to her norm. So. Well, that's great. We're, we're uh, yeah, it's a. Uh, Watching your parent, watching your parents go through these things is tough. Yep. And I, and I guess uh, it's just, I guess it's just payback for all the times they put up with our nonsense. And, uh, <laughs> you know, 
it, it, it's a lifelong process as you watch your older parents and your uncles and aunts, and then you start seeing your siblings sometimes and your cousins start to go, and then you realize what life is all about. Yes, you do. Yes, you do. Oh, well, I'm like Charlie Smith. I have developed his his adage. I'm, my goal is to live to be 120 and get shot by a jealous husband. <laughs> so that may be true in the case. <laughs> You're right, Jerry. <laughs> I saw a I saw a program on the internet with uh, at Jerry on the front with uh, uh, Killer Cox uh, as the main event. Jerry, did you see that uh, picture? Yes. Do you know where that was from? That was Louisiana. Okay. Did you work? A uh, full program with Cox here? In Louisiana, I did, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, the way they worded that, uh, he, he gave you a sneak attack and you got to take some time off, but I, that just meant you were working in the north end of the territory, right? No, I took off. Did you really? I took really? off, uh, yeah, a couple of weeks. But I went around, you know. I, I, I didn't wrestle well. He did that in, uh, he did it in Tulsa. He gave me a brain bust on the floor. So How did, you know, I've often, I've watched him do it, Murdoch do it, you know, that, and, and it's different from a suplex because you're not falling to where you can catch, you know, the flat of your feet and your shoulders. How do you block that? You don't. They trust him totally. I mean, they come straight now, and, and I finally he had he did that a couple other places, and uh, we did the the big deal. And it was me and uh, John against him and somebody in Tulsa. And the match was over. And that's when he jumped me, threw me out of the ring, and, and gave me one on the floor. And that's when the fan tried to stop him and turned me into the ring. Then he was a mess. But uh, he did it about, before we did the thing actually in Tulsa, he'd given me about four or five on the floor in other places. And uh, I finally told him, I said, I can't take another one. I, I cannot take another one. Not that he hurt me, but I would land on my hip when I'd come. Uh, he comes straight down with you, and your legs are straight up in there when he comes down, and I'd land on right. my, I forget which side. And I, I, it was, it was, my hip was purple and yellow and green. And I told myself, I can't take another one, man, on the floor. So, but Dickie never gave me one on the floor, Murdoch. But, but Carl, I'd trust him give me one on, on nails. I, I, you know, I, I have it, how he protected me like that, or whoever he gave it to. I, I got that was the most unbelievable. You know, move I, so I just, I don't, I don't see how. I mean, I know, like with a power driver, you're catching it on your forearms, so your head's not really, you know, taking full force of it. I just, I, I've never been able to figure out how, how they protect you with a brain buster. That, that I don't either. But uh, on a power driver, if you hurt somebody with a power driver, it's your fault. Yeah, oh, yeah, absolutely. And I, I never tried to catch myself on a pile driver or nothing. Yeah. That's, I mean, the you, the you word you said the there, Jerry, and I was, I was going to butt in, you got you to really trust the guy that's doing it to you. 
uh, or you don't go for it. You know, yeah, like that mean, brain buster thing. Well, you place the guy's head, you know it's not going to, I mean, anyhow, you should know what you're doing if you could try some move where you can break somebody's neck, you know. Yeah. I mean, oh, yeah. I think uh, I think Owen Hart did that to uh, uh, Steve Austin. Messed his neck up. You, you, you talking about driving somebody, dropping somebody straight down their head, man? Come on, man. You better know what Ooh, you're doing. God. I just how many how many guys you reckon Orton Senior ever ever give that pile driver to? He's the first guy I ever remember, you know, being devastating with it as a kid. <laughs> no telling. Huh? Well, you know, another guy passed away this week. Right? Who's that? Sweet Who? Wasn't it this oh. week? Yeah. Well, oh, last yeah, week. Yeah. Well, yeah. Rob Sweet Hand. Yep. Yeah. yeah. I that didn't made me think of him. On uh, you said Louisiana because that's I, I was he was out there when I was there and and you know. I'm not gonna say too much because everybody, whatever. But you know, guys make their own legacies, you know. And he had one that was, you know, he was one of those guys. When you went to the locker room, you better, you better, you better get somebody to hold your stuff. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean that was just. I mean that that was that was common knowledge. Oh yeah, you locked it up in the car or something. You didn't. And, and mm. you know, I and, 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 and I you had know, never, I had never thought ahead. about that being so bad, Jerry. That the the in the locker rooms that that things would go missing like that. I mean, you go you open my eyes to a new element of of the business by what happened not in the ring or out in front of the people, but what happened in, in the locker room. Well, the, the saddest thing of, of all that is, you know, I mean, it, it's not—it's not just in that business. It's in, it's in the banking business. It's in uh, in hospitals. It's anywhere where anybody can steal stuff. But you know, not that we were anything special, or what we did was anything special. But these guys—you trusted your life with these guys. Yep. Yep. Mm-hmm. You know, it's you know, it's not like being an airplane pilot, but every night you you're upside down, or you know, or somebody's gonna do something, or you know, somebody can slam you and throw you down on your shoulder, or your head, or I mean, it's just, and then somebody's gonna go in your bag or your, you know, your clothes. Come on, man. But well, the, the, you know. the only good thing is that that uh, usually. If somebody was in the territory that was that way, somebody would warn you. you Usually know, they'd let they you did. know. And, and it happened one night when I was there. Something got missing. Huh. But but you you talking about dangerous things? The the last match I ever worked was was at uh, Channel Seventeen. And I worked with Scott Irwin when he was a super destroyer. You know, his big finisher was that superplex off the top rope. And I was so worried that that was going to be the finish he wanted to do. And not that I didn't trust him. I didn't trust myself to be able to get up on that top rope and stand up and be able to help him get me over because I was so clumsy. 
Um, I just I, I knew I was going going to break my neck, his, and everything else. But luckily he uh, he did a belly belly to belly suplex, and that's that's how it ended. But I was so worried he was going to call that spot, but luckily he did. Somebody must have somebody must have told him in advance, Mike. Uh, what? Uh, Are you that or he read my mind? <laughs> 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 but I, I, I'll tell you right now, I wouldn't have taken one from him, not him. I mean, there's only a few guys I, I never took one, but I wouldn't. I, I wouldn't take. There's not many guys I'd have taken that from. Well, he and Orton it, it, Jr. It, it, back in in my day, he and Orton Jr. were the only two that ever did it, and I never worked with Orton Jr. But let me tell you something: if their foot slips, you're dead. Yeah. You think about that now. When they go to pick you up off that top, if their foot and we're all sweaty, those ropes are wet. Yeah. If their foot slips up, you're dead. Oh, not me. Oh, well, I, I never took one. I, I wasn't gonna take one. I, I just tell them I'm not gonna take that. Another odd one that seemed to me, and and Tully Blanchard's the only one I ever saw do that slingshot suplex. There again, yeah. what happens if he loses a grip on you when he drops you across the top rope on your waist? You know, if he and lets you go of you, you're sweaty, and he, you slip away from him, you're going to be propelled backwards, and there's no way you're going to have be, have time to react to protect yourself from hitting the floor. There you go. You're exactly right. Or if he drops you, you know, folks' thighs don't hit across that rope. And like you said, you hit across your waist. Mm-hmm. You you gonna buckle? I don't care who you are. <laughs> you gonna double up like a like a, uh, a gym clip? Yes, you are. <laughs> so I mean, people don't realize what we did was dangerous. I mean, it's it was it was it was. Well, you know that goes back, Jerry, to the believers and the non-believers as to what took place in the ring, and you know it it was a there was no point in trying to explain it because they either bought it 100% or they didn't buy it at all. And uh, it, it, it was, you know, there was no point in trying to educate them because once you did that, you were going past Cape Babe at the time. You couldn't do that. But but once again, they, they, they believed what they saw or, or they, you know, they it was the old wrestling straight that thing. And, and you got really no respect for the, uh, you know, for the, for the things that you really put yourself through during that time, you know, during that time. Yeah, you couldn't, you know, there wasn't, there, there wasn't any need, but, you know, it's just, it was what it was. But it, it's sad to think you, you're in the ring uh, doing your job, that's your job, when you get there to go in the ring, and you're hoping they got Brink security guards in there guarding your bag. That's sad. Right. <laughs> Yeah, you know, I'll tell you something. Else. This is this is funny, but you know, <clears throat> you know something you learn real quick too. You never take expensive cologne in your bag uh, to the locker room because as soon as somebody found out you had it, everybody'd be wearing it. <laughs> yeah, Romo was a master of that. <laughs> everybody smelled like me when I come back from the ring. <laughs> Or even if they didn't steal it, they do like uh, 
your your former brother-in-law, and if you were a midget, they'd nail your shoes to the ceiling so you couldn't reach them. <laughs> <laughs> Drawer would tie your clothes in knots. Yeah, he said that to me. I don't know how many times. <clears throat> I was in, a, in 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 Columbus at the auditorium down there. You had the the locker rooms. They were not real big. I mean, they were you know you wasn't on top of each other, but. The showers, there was no door. It was just an opening, and the shower room was almost as big as this little room we sit in. And I went in there one night, and I was standing there taking a shower, and Drummond hollers, hold this, and he throws something at me. Well, you, you know, you just you react and catch it. You're standing there on the water, and what he threw me was my underwear. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, you just never knew. <laughs> So you came home without wearing your underwear. Oh yeah, we were we were on natural under the pants. Yeah. And then you have to explain that. (laughs) Yeah, that's why you didn't. uh, It was best not to be married when you were in the wrestling business. Oh geez. Listen, long story, and I've told that, before, but bites, I'll just give on, you bites on the back and stuff like that. I switched the spouses just don't Explain to that. your wife that the teeth mark on your back were from Ronnie West. That was a, that was <laughs> that was. A, I'm not real sure that ever got over. <laughs> but I never fooled anybody's personal stuff or nothing. You know. No, no, no. Me neither. No. Not Another at all. thing they would do is if you had any white tape. If you left it laying where it could be seen, yeah, leave everybody thought that was free, free, free tape. He got in my bag one night in Carrollton. He looked like the mummy when he got through using that. <laughs> I thought I said, man, I said, hey, I said, they sell that stuff. I said, don't ever go in my bag again. You know, I never went in my brother's bag. I told him one night I need some tape. He said, get out of my bag. I never went in my brother's bag. That no. looks like going in a woman's purse to me. Yeah, Oh, yeah, that's your personal stuff right there. But that sounds like a good book title. They sell that stuff. You know, I mean, somebody ought to maybe think along those lines. But that that's a classic, you know, that's classic there, Jerry. Just to, well, I flat told him uh, that. Well, man, I just needed some tape. But you know how much he used, you know? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Wrap his right fist all the way up to his elbow. Yeah, all that junk at my expense. <laughs> well, I'm, I can say I'm one of the few people probably brave enough to go in Harley Race's bag. But all I did was put a note in there. I didn't take nothing out. <laughs> well, guys, our uh, our uh, special guest is uh, hanging on the line with us. I'm going to get him on the air with us. <clears throat> uh, welcome to Peace State Pandemonium, Richard Vicek, uh, author of the, uh, the the Crowbar Press book, Bruiser, the World's Most Dangerous Wrestler. Richard, how are you doing this evening? It's great to be here, Mike, and I just want to tell Jay, Jerry, and Bobby, I listen to almost all your shows. I uh, listen for a lot of years. In fact, the first show is when you had my publisher, Scott Teal, as a guest, probably about four years ago or so. But mm-hmm. it's, uh, it's, it's nice to be here and tell you all about the world's most dangerous wrestler. Well, 
I'm assuming you grew up, you're from Indianapolis, or Indiana anyway, so you grew up obviously a wrestling fan and a bruiser fan. Is is that the reason? What what got you on, what made you decide to author a book about Dick the Bruiser? Well, I actually grew up in Chicago, but when you watched television wrestling in Chicago, starting around 1965, you were viewing a videotape from Indianapolis, okay? Where yeah, right. Dick the Bruiser and Wilbur Snyder co-owned a wrestling promotion. And, and But anyway, I did a, uh, a biography on Dick the Bruiser. Uh, well, here's what. Probably around 15 years ago, you would start to see wrestling books, professional wrestling books in Barnes & Noble and Borders and these bookstores. But so many of them were current wrestling superstars touting their own career and tooting their own horn. And for all those years, I've witnessed Dick the Bruiser, and I thought, you know, Matt, if I don't tell the story, some, some no one else will. And now that it's 25, 26 years after his death, uh, it's a, the time was right. He was a big star in the pre-Hulk Hogan era. And, okay, he wasn't a top-tier wrestler like Ganya. Bruno, Dory Funk Jr., Backlund, you know, Ric Flair, Harley Race, but he's in that next tier. And uh, he was a pretty big performer in the territorial days. And he had what I thought was an interesting, compelling, and worthwhile story to tell. And so that's, oh, and then how can it, hurt when there is a company like Crowbar Press, who's probably done 25 plus books on professional wrestling, and you have a publisher who's very interested in preserving old school wrestling. So uh, those are the things that I I was thinking about when I started this project. Actually, the first letters sent for interview requests were January 2009. So that's how, and the publication was March 2016. So it was quite a research project. Well, you you were talking about Bruiser. I would say probably when in his earlier day in the in the mid 50s, mm-hmm. he was probably based on on being seen out of out of. Uh, the Chicago stuff that was on the Dumont Network, he was probably just behind Rocca and Gorgeous George as far as name recognition, wouldn't you think? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, because in that those 1950s, where he started out wrestling uh, part-time in Reno, but then he went to, the, to Minneapolis, Winnipeg, Chicago, Milwaukee, Indianapolis, Omaha, 
Uh, he in any, even in '56, he goes to Washington D.C. and New York City against Raqqa. Now, how's this about for Bruiser? It's his second year in professional wrestling, and he's already he has main events against Fez, Ganya, Snyder, Raqqa in the biggest wrestling meccas of the country. So. Uh, and of course, I forgot. In 1957, he he wrestled in Montreal, feuded with Carpentier. So he really got around in that in those earlier years. Uh, that and that, you know that helped his reputation. And I don't know how many wrestlers, just like I just said, how many wrestlers were in main events their second year in the business against the cream of the crop elite wrestlers. Unless they had a family name backing them up, not very many. And you also, if you think about it, and, and, you know, a lot of people think that, that, you know, they realize that Gorgeous George and and Rock and those type of people, they were were what's considered mainstream now as far as getting mainstream coverage and press and stuff. But you think about those of us that are, that are, old enough to remember you or or have have access to see things like Bugs Bunny cartoons or anything that has anything to do outside of the wrestling business but has to do with the way they portray wrestling nine times out of ten if they were portraying a professional wrestler they looked like Dick the Bruiser they sounded like Dick the Bruiser Uh, here's a perfect quote from actor Peter Lupus who was a bodybuilder and on the old Mission Impossible show, who grew up in Indianapolis at the same time with Dick the Bruiser. Lucas said to me, if God wanted to create a professional wrestler, it would have been Dick the Bruiser. Except. You know, same concept as you brought up, you know? Yep. Well, you talking about Madison Square Garden? That that brings me um, one of our regular listeners, uh, a gentleman by the name of of Bert, who's from uh, New Jersey. He had uh, he knew you were going to be on tonight, and he had a a question. He's read your book and everything, but really didn't see uh, a whole lot written about it. Is was there a reason when the world the famous riot that happened in Madison Square Garden that involved Bruiser? Dr. Jerry Graham, Carpentier, and Rocca, why yeah. it seemed to be that Bruiser took the brunt of that. It's, even though it was Graham and Rocca that started the whole situation, Bruiser seems to have taken the brunt of that, and was there a reason why he never went back after all that? I mean, they, they kayfabe okay. it and said that he was barred from New York, but that obviously wasn't yeah. true. But He had a few matches at the old Madison Square Garden afterwards. But he was so in demand all over the country in the 1950s. Uh, When it came down to the New York State Athletic Commission, the big fines were assessed, 1,000 against Rocca, 1,000 against Graham, 500 for Bruiser, 100 for Carpentier. Now, he would always say, I've been banned for life in New York ever since that riot. 
Well, you know, hey, anything for some hype and for publicity, that's fine. But, that, you know, he didn't have to work. He didn't have to go back to New York uh, right. or, any of the, or any of those related cities, which I think I maybe at that time the owners were Toots Mott, Vince Jr., you know, people like that. So that's, of course, though, how many rest, wrestlers got nationwide publicity like that, including articles in Time Magazine and Life Magazine. And the year before, in 1956, in Life Magazine, there was a little uh, a little photo article with Bruiser, uh, some kind of weightlifting demonstration with a lightweight boxer, and it was just unbelievable strength. So it was a test of strength thing. And Bruiser got... That mate was in Life Magazine in 1956. You know, so he really, he knew how to do it. He had uh, a helper in the Chicago office, promoter, publicist, and photographer, Bob Luce. And that relationship carried into the 1980s. Bob Luce was a character himself. Somebody needs to write a book about him. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, well I, oh, I'm just thinking what, uh, what what Bert was thinking was you know what kind of money they could have made while Bruiser was still a heel in the in the you know the early to mid '60s. Um, what kind of money that would have drawn to have him go back into New York to challenge Bruno? But by that oh, yeah. time, he and Snyder were so you know had had bought Indianapolis and were were tied up there. You know, so yeah, like you uh, said, Mike, he didn't have to go because he had his own territory. Uh, I just want to make uh, a clarification about Bruiser and Snyder uh, starting off in Indianapolis. They did not pay anybody for that territory. They started running independent shows opposite Buck Estes and Jim Barnett and... You know the thing about the build a better mousetrap or the cream rises to the top. Eventually, Estes and Barnett threw in the towel due to the competition offered by Dick the Bruiser and Wilbur Snyder. Well, that that's interesting because Jay West here. That's interesting because that's not generally what uh, you know from a historical standpoint is. Is said about that. It's uh, you know most of what I've read is said they did purchase it. So that's certainly a new take on uh, uh, on how things went there when they started uh, when they started their promotion there. My source for this was Texas Attorney William Estes, the son of Bach. So I got it right from the son, who as a kid used to go run around town with his brother and tear down Snyder Bruiser promotion posters <laughs> off, of, <laughs> off of street posts. Yeah, so, yeah. Well, going back a little earlier, is before Bruiser got into wrestling, of course, it, it didn't hurt that once he got into wrestling, he was he was one of the few that were actually a genuine 
staff. Or football player. I mean, if you look at articles in the newspaper and stuff like that, back especially back in the 50s, it seemed like every other guy that worked in the wrestling business was a former was billed as a former football player. Even Joe Scarpa was supposedly a former football player and you know in the mm-hmm. when he came first came to Mobile, you know, they billed him that way. But Bruiser actually had been playing football since since high school and was mm-hmm. was a well known, you know, athlete from high school forward as far as being a, a you know, talented football player. Yes, well, some of the other uh, football uh, people uh, who went into wrestling, there was Leo Namolini out in San Francisco, uh, a Packer teammate the year before Bruiser got there. His ring name was Hard-Boiled Haggerty. Uh, I don't have the, you know, you guys may know who I'm talking about. So yeah, there was Haggerty. some there. Yeah. You talking you talking about I, Dan uh, Stossock, who was yeah 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 the, he, was, he was he was the third hard boiled Haggerty, but the the best known. Okay. Yeah, and he in fact uh, he's considered you know uh, he's one of the people that said to Bruiser at some point in time, hey, you should uh, you should uh, consider this wrestling business. Another uh, recruiter was Vern Gagne, who said, you know, you have some athleticism. This may be a good fit for you. Also, the Minneapolis Legion wrestler and shooter Joe Pazenbeck. So there's a lot of people in those mid-50s that had some connections with Bruiser and some influence on him. Uh, Richard, how nice uh, telling us how old you are? I am sixty. Fifty. Five. Five. Oh, I, I am. Excuse me. Six zero. She's a baby. So, so let's see. Yeah. So, you know, my arithmetic is off here. I'm an old guy. So. How old were you then in 1965? Were you around? You said you saw Bruiser in 65, yeah. right? Nine. I was nine when, uh, in fact, that coincided with the formation of the Chicago Wrestling Club, where the three behind-the-scenes controlling people were Vern Gagne, Dick the Bruiser, and Wilbur Snyder. The promoter of record was Bob Luce. Right. And around November 1965, they completed the transfer of ownership from Fred Kohler. And I think January 1966 was the first promotion card promoted by the Chicago Wrestling Club at the International Amphitheater. So that's where it all started, and that's around the fall of 1965. That's when I started watching this black and white TV show on 9 p.m. on WCIU Channel 26 in Chicago. It originated from Indianapolis, 
with Indianapolis pioneer in broadcasting, Chuck Marlowe, hosting the show and conducting the interviews. So that's how, uh, I, that's how I got you know exposed to this. And I must say, had some pretty good. Yeah. What night of the week was that on? It was on Wednesday and Friday at nine at nine p.m. And before you know it, they added a Monday night, and they showed Vern Gallion, AWA wrestling program from Minneapolis. So now uh, I I would get two wrestling shows. You know, and that was pretty good. Being able to watch the cream of the crop from two wrestling promotions who would join forces in Chicago. So you would get you would get the people from Indianapolis, WWA, which at the time would have included Bruiser, Wilbur Snyder, the Assassins, a young Bobby Keenan. He, uh, well, Les, Les Thatcher and Dennis Hall were with Bruiser in some of those early years. And then from Minneapolis, we'd get Vern Gagne, the crush, Mad Dog Bichon. So, you know, just the main, oh, Larry Henning and Harley Race. So that's pretty good to be in Chicago and get have these cards stocked with uh, talent from both of those companies, you know? I guess that was just a big treat for me. Absolutely. And, um, you know, it was unusual if, for a, a wrestling town to have the shows stacked from two, in the, two different promotions. You know, I just thought, uh, although I didn't know that then, I mean, it, it took sure. a while you know, because I get the wrestling magazine. Who's Bruno Sammartino? I never, where does he wrestle? Or Lou, Lou Fez or Gene Kinnisky? Okay, you know, it took a while, you know, because I only really had a good handle on what I saw on TV in Chicago and at the amphitheater uh, at 43rd and South Halstead Street where my in April of 1966, my parents took me to the first card. The main wow. event was Vern Gagne versus Johnny Valentine. The, sem- the second main event was Harley Race, Larry Hennig against Dick the Bruiser and Pat O'Connor. Hennig and Race were the AWA champions at the time, and they held on to their belts. I bet you can't guess who dropped the fall, the deciding fall. Obviously, Pat O'Connor, but hey, he has a lot of credits, other credits. To his. So, yeah, that's and I'll just add the second card. I was so freaked out, my parents took me to the next card, May 21st. The main event was a Congo death match, Mad Dog Bashan versus Dick the Bruiser. Non-title match. Mad Dog was the AWA champion, and that's the first time I saw Crimson. And that was, the, and the, hear the crowd go into his 
hysteria. That was just amazing for a nine-year-old. Well, then I suppose you you started seeing the wrestling magazines showing uh, uh, work wrestlers from all around the country, right? Oh, yeah. I remember the, the publication Wrestling World. They had a lot of issues with the sheep. I, and I couldn't know, who's the sheep guy? How come I don't get to see him? You know, and, uh, and I remember I, I mentioned earlier Gene Kinesky, you know, the AWA. Then I would go to the ratings pages. Remember those uh, where they would rank the wrestlers? I, I was always impressed with Nick the Bruiser. He was always in, in the 1960s in one of the top ten, you know? He right. never held... He never held one of those big, you know, an AWA, WWF belt or NWA belt. But, you know, he was a challenger and formidable foe for a lot of those champions. Right. I mean, the NWA champions, in, whether it be in Atlanta or St. Louis or, you know. Now you mentioned so the Sheik. Uh, he was in and out of Detroit quite a bit at that time as well, or at various times. Well, I tell you, I think it it was in Detroit where Dick the Bruiser really attained his first big success. In 1959, in April 1959, Johnny Doyle and Jim Barnett started co-promoting professional wrestling at the Olympia Stadium in Detroit. The, the first part was April 11th. The main event was Dick the Bruiser against Yukon Eric. And it drew over 15,000 and a 15,000 fans and a full, over a 40,000 box office gate. Those shows, the TV promotion was run out of Windsor, Ontario, it's on CKLW Channel 9 with Sam Medeker as the play-by-play guy who would reunite 15 years later in Indianapolis with Brewster. But that's how it started, Brewster with the U.S. heavyweight title. Uh, and for those next two years, he main evented on 38 of the, of the next 40 cards at the Olympia Stadium in Detroit. Even, yeah, even Billboard magazine wrote a small piece on, well, look at the, the box office number at this Olympia Stadium with this guy, Dick the Bruiser. It was, it was a, an amazing era, and he faced a who's who of opponents during those years. Uh, you know, anyway, you name any big wrestling star in the late 50s. He probably went to went to Detroit to be in a main event against Dick the Bruiser. Well, back in that era, well, throughout his career, he, he was, I guess later on, <clears throat> he was more, other than being heavily involved in, in his own promotion in Indianapolis, he was, he was so well known for teaming with um, the Crusher. But he had so many. I, the number one name that pops into my head when I think about people that that Bruiser feuded with was Bob Ellis. It seemed like those oh, two. Oh yeah. 
took that feud all over the country. Hey, uh, I have a list right in front of me where I where I have you know I have some cheat sheets you know in front of me. I don't I'll confess to that. But you know <laughs> I have here who are the top people that Vic the Bruiser feuded with. In my in my number one slot in chronological order is Cowboy Bob Ellis and all these Barnett-controlled cities, uh, Detroit, Cincinnati, Indianapolis, Louisville. Bob Ellis was a, the big opponent for Dixie And uh, the noted Canadian wrestling author, uh, the, the Canoe Slam Wrestling. Uh, why did my, I lost the name? Greg, Greg Oliver. Greg interviewed yeah. Bob Ellis for me. And that a lot of that interview is re, is quoted and reproduced in Bruiser, the world's most dangerous wrestler from Crowbar Press. But Ellis was really a big opponent uh, all through the Midwest. So was, in my opinion, Mad Dog Bashan. Of course, I saw a lot. Of, uh, I saw that big time death match, and that left an impression on me forever. But when you consider the other big opponents, the original Sheik, Ernie Ladd, Ox Baker, Bruiser Brody, and in St. Louis in 1964, Fritz von Erich. I think there were four main events. In St. Louis that year, involving involving Fritz von Erich. So, uh, now he he had some really legendary feuds against each one of those names I mentioned were major stars in professional wrestling. Absolutely, absolutely, and um, you know, even after when did he when did they uh, actually? Start the, uh, the Indianapolis promotion. He and Snyder. Nineteen sixty-four. Okay. Now that's what I was thinking was sixty-four because yeah. they were still traveling as well, because the yeah. two of them came through the Gulf Coast territory in uh, the summer of sixty-four, and uh, they wrestled each other in Pensacola. They were only in two towns. They 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 worked in Pensacola on a Tuesday night. They wrestled each other. And then uh, they were in Mobile the next night, and uh, Bruiser wrestled uh, Lee Fields, who was the top star and the promoter of that territory, of the Gulf Coast Territory. It's it's amazing. You mentioned Alabama. In 1964, all the cities that Bruiser wrestled in as a single wrestler – you know, Kansas City, Los Angeles, San Diego, what outside of Indianapolis and Chicago. How did I you look in the schedule and he's doing twenty dates a month zigzagging the country. You know, but of course when you're younger there, let's see, is he no, he is he's in his mid thirties by then. Okay, but still it was amazing exposure and of course he uh, managed to stir the the what, what used to be called what was called the WWA 
heavyweight championship from Fred Glassie at the Olympic Auditorium in Los Angeles. And then he and then he brought the belt back to Indianapolis and all the papers announced, hey, Bruiser won WWA World Championship in Los Angeles. The next day, Tim and Snyder did their first car. So, you know, talk about orchestrating publicity. Right. So it was, uh, and then to be able to win the promotional war against Barnett and that, that was also pretty impressive. Yeah. It was in and around that same time frame when he again made non wrestling headlines when he and Alex Karras yes. had their little now, let me let me ask you about that. Mike and I have talked about that before and uh, I've talked with various other people uh, about whether the bar fight with Alex Karras was a shoot or whether it was somewhat worked. And doing your background on that, what is your uh, what's your call on that? It was a publicity stunt. Uh, however, when the shoving started, some real policemen arrived on the scene. And they did not know that this was a publicity stunt. And there, right. and eventually, Bruiser got arrested. I managed to track down the son of one of the injured and disabled Detroit policemen, who was who went on permanent disability after this brawl. Wow! Like six or eight cops this Bruiser, and of course this. Disabled policeman, you know, won judgments from from Bruiser, you know, years later, and the Bruiser, uh, you know, said to the the policeman who's passed away since the son said, "Hey, Bruiser said I didn't mean to hurt you. This just got out of hand." However, that was on in most newspapers, coast to coast, the second time. It's the Bruiser gets nationwide publicity because of his uh, brawling or riotous action. And I think that was the final, that was the final, that's the Bruiser, excuse me, that was the final wrestling match for Alex Harris on April 27, 1963. It actually didn't draw too good. They thought they thought it would, but uh, well, who knows? You know, people can speculate. You know, why right. why why does the card off? Why does the Broadway show close after eight weeks? You know, it who knows? But, yeah. Well, if it had drawn a little better, they probably would have had uh, you know met again. Mhm. For sure. Hmm. Well, a lot of Bobby, people don't realize uh, Karras was actually a, a professional wrestler before he became a football player. He had actually dabbled in it during in his college years. Yes. Uh, Alex Karras was on the undercard, I think, for some of those Olympia Stadium cards where Nick the Brewster was the main event. Yes. 
And and Alex Karras appears in some of the Wrestling Life magazine issues in the late 1950s, which originated in Chicago under Fred Kohler. So he got himself on some Fred Kohler cards as well. This is Alex Karras. Karras is one of the several people I tried to get to if tried for an interview, but it just didn't work work out. His, uh, his office manager in uh, Hollywood said uh, he was suffering from dementia, and I, I wouldn't do any good. He, she thought so. Also tried to uh, talk to Bruiser's widow daughter and son-in-law to no avail. Bobby the Brain Heenan turned down uh, a compensated interview offer. He said he wrote back two words, not interested. So, you know, I tried to get, but I still interviewed over 250 people on this. So, it isn't, you know, you know, I, uh, I still, you know, you can see, everyone's quoted right in the open in this book, you know. Uh, I spent an right. hour with Dory Funk Jr. at his wrestling school in Ocala, Florida. I have what I believe the only interview with Black Jack Lanza. I don't know if you've ever seen an interview anywhere on Black Jack Lanza, you know, no, over I, I can't think of any I've ever seen. Yeah. Well, he, you know, he was very, he had faith in my project. I had a, a very nice conversations with Larry Luthowski, the son of the crusher. Uh, Mike Snyder, Wilbur's son, gave me a lot of insight. Of course, Bruiser's son-in-law, Scott Romer, Tim Rapokal, were very good. And the late Indianapolis broadcaster, Chuck Marlowe, granted multiple interviews and wrote the foreword to the book. Yep. Marlowe went to the same high school as Vic the Bruiser in that short ridge of Indianapolis. Jay, what were you going to say a minute ago? I was just uh, wondering that, uh, you know, uh, you and I have both been asking a lot of questions. I just wondered if uh, Bobby or Jerry wanted to jump in there with anything. I, I, I Sometimes my wife says, I, I, I don't know when to quit talking, you know. And uh, that's part of, being, part of being in the radio business for as long as I was, I think, and not wanting to have any dead air. But, uh, you know, this is a very interesting subject, but I, I don't want to keep Jerry or Bobby from asking something if they want to. Well, this Bobby, I, I we asked this question in a general discussion a while back. I only got to see the Bruiser in person a couple of times. He came into Georgia. He was uh, he played a big part in the very first when they established the Georgia Heavyweight Championship in the '60s. He was in the finals of a tournament against Sputnik Munro. Uh, I also believe I think it was not only that; it was a Cadillac tournament as well. The winner got the belt and the, and the Cadillac. Anyway. But that was held at the Atlanta Raceway in Atlanta. And I saw him one other time at the auditorium. He he came through in some, some kind of deal. But, but but the question I have, and maybe you can answer this, maybe in your research you came across this, mm-hmm. 
I seem to remember him doing an interview, and it was it was. Here's Gid being a kid and a fan. I, I didn't realize, I didn't know what it was, but it was a tape that they had sent in from somewhere. But I'm thinking this is in the very early part of the very beginning of segregation. It had to be, I didn't start going to the matches until I was uh, 1964 when I was eight, so it was sometime after that. Did, did, did he ever do any interviews where he actually had a black man on a chain as if he was his pet or something? I knew it had to be a heat-generating thing, or I do now, but my mind and my memory is telling me I remember seeing this as a kid, and I didn't know if this was something he did other places or if it's just, man, maybe I'm way off base, but I swear I remember this happening. I never heard of that type of a publicity stunt. You know, someone played for me an audio tape where... He refer he used the phrase that chimpanzee referring to a black wrestler. This is when he was a heel around nineteen sixty five in Chicago. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the way you you know, that was you know, at the time he's playing he's playing the bad guy. You know, from his personal life, you know, he you know, went out of his way to employ Bobo Brazil and Sailor Art Thomas and Prince Poets and Early Lad. So there's never been, you know, any accusation of him being racist or anything like that. But, yeah, sometimes you have to say things, you know, that are nasty to get people to react. Yeah, so, but, no, I was I haven't heard that that story as far as uh, uh, the chain situation. So, now he did, he was sued and there was an out-of-court settlement in Cincinnati for shoving a lady in a wheelchair sitting at ringside. And she fell out of the wheelchair and she sued the Cincinnati Gardens, Dick the Bruiser, and Jim Barnett in 1959, and there was an out-of-court settlement. So we'll never know, but the the newspaper in Cincinnati reported a uh, out-of-court settlement, and the commission suspended him for a couple cards, I think. Did, in understanding how you became interested in the bruiser and I know this is who your book is about but I guess 65 uh, 1965 as you were saying was when you really got interested uh, mm-hmm. and and I was just getting out of the army in 66 and that's when my interest in pro wrestling uh, you know lit up again because I can vaguely remember uh, being uh, almost 70 now I can vaguely remember the Dumont Network uh, in the early 50s on television uh, but were there was there anyone else other than than Bruiser that lit your fire uh, in pretty much the same way as he did? Well, the, the next most influential performer, his real name is Raymond Lewis Heenan. In the mid 1960s, 
he had a part-time job at the Indianapolis Coliseum uh, uh, taking wrestlers' jackets from the ring back to the dressing room, selling Coca-Colas, setting up the ring. And he uh, was observed at the Coliseum, and Dick the Bruiser asked him, went up to him and said, I'd like you to come over to the television station at noon on Tuesday. I want you to, I want you to be there for the wrestling interviews, and your name is going to be Bobby. And so, you know, I give Bruiser credit for recognizing something in Bobby Heenan, and uh, I think one of Bruiser's big legacies is the fact that he brought Bobby Heenan into professional wrestling. And, hey, when you consider who was the number one nemesis of Dick the Bruiser in the, for so many over decades, you know, in both Chicago and Indianapolis, what's the common denominator? It's Bobby Heenan and his stable of bad guys, whether uh-huh. assassins or the devil's duo, Chris Markoff and Angelo Papo, the Blackjacks, the Valiant Brothers, Bachwinkle and Stevens. Uh, that, was, that was quite a match there, a perfect pair, Bruiser and Union. Well, just to clarify something, the assassins that were in uh up in that area were not the assassins that were that, that us yeah. being in Georgia uh oh, yeah. recognized not, they were wasn't Hamilton yeah. and, and Renesto, it was it was Guy Mitchell and uh Joe Tommaso. Yes. Uh in fact I was well, I used to think when I would see the assassins in a wrestling magazine, uh oh that I didn't know they wrestled that, that down there. And <laughs> it, it was it was they, right, one was a little heavier and one was taller. You know what I'm saying? I thought, I wonder if that's them. But no, you know, of course, Guy Mitchell or John Seal Hill, Jerry Valiant, the Strangler, the Stomper, he became right. one of the most steady and constant employees for Dick the Bruiser over a 20-year period off and on. You know, I guess Indianapolis was such a long way away that uh, that Gunkel, you know, the assassins being his big stars in, here in Georgia, yeah. that he never bothered to, you know, do anything about it. Because in uh, 63 or 64, in the Mobile Territory, Corsica Joe and... Um, uh, Red Steiner came in as the assassins there, and okay. they were there maybe two weeks under that name, and then all of a sudden they became the Untouchables, because Ray Gunkel okay. placed a phone call to Lee Fields and said, "Look, the assassins, is, that's my my you know my stars here in Georgia, and you know because there was some bleed over." And at okay. the far eastern end of of the Gulf Coast territory and the southernmost end of the Georgia territory, 
uh, Albany, places like that, um, where Jay was from, or it was at one time. Um, but there were some bleed over. So he placed a call, Gunkel placed a call and to Lee Fields and said, look, knock it off. And they became mm-hmm. the untouchables. But I guess Indianapolis was so far away that, that Gunkel really wasn't yeah. concerned about it. Yeah. Here's a Ray Gunkel story. In 1947, where where William Franklin Athlas, that's the bruiser's real name, is a senior at Jefferson High School. They start a wrestling team. Who do you think comes over from Purdue and participates in training practices and scrimmages with the Jefferson High School wrestlers? Ray Gunkel. Hmm. Yeah. So, uh, I don't know, you know, Brewster was not a star high school wrestler. Uh, There's no newspaper evidence that he was ever selected to be on the, the, the squad that faced another school. You know, sometimes there's inner squad scrimmages, and but uh, and he never was in. He was never in the the pictures of the team. You know, he had credits in the yearbook, but he just he didn't. Uh, of course, in football, he was an all-state guard. You know, so that was his sport. But yeah, Ray Dunk. In fact, some of Bruiser's wrestling. Partner uh, in high school, there there was the one that told me about Ray Gunkel. I don't think they knew they knew he was a king of amateur wrestling. I don't even think I don't even think I said to him. You know, he was a professional wrestler in the in southern states. Do you guys know that? But they remembered Ray Gunkel, and that was pretty hmm. impressionable for those high school kids. They have a national champion wrestler come over and visit them. You know, I would imagine so. Jefferson, yeah, Jefferson High School. It's only three miles from the Purdue campus. Now, Jerry, you you said before we were talking about Bruiser, you were only around him at the tail end in St. Louis, right? Yeah, the first time I met him, I mean, of course, I'm like Jay and everybody else. I was a Russian fan from, I mean, just a young boy. I mean, you know, I. I Got the stuff out of Chicago, and I mean, growing up, you know, Dick the Bruiser, you know, you you always wanted to see him, you know, and I, I never never did get to see him as a kid. And then I met him the first time uh, in Kansas City. We had flown back out for a tournament, and he was there. I forget who his partner was, but that's the first time I'd ever met him. And I, I was sitting there looking at him, you know, here I've been in the business of what. <laughs> You know, quite a while in, and I'm looking at the bruiser, and I'm like, I finally get to see him. You know, he's in the dressing room, and you know, it was just, it was an honor to get to meet him. You know, I'd seen him uh, on TV since I was a kid, and you know, I had every wrestling magazine printed back then, and then I finally got to meet him, and then I was around him uh, maybe four other times in St. Louis, and then that that was that was it. But, he was still impressive then. This was in the '80s when I when I yeah. when I met him, but he was still yeah. impressive, you know. Yeah. Hey Jerry, he had a very impressive long run in St. Louis from 1963 oh, to '83. In fact, wow. Some people consider 
Sam Munchnik to be like a substitute father for Dick the Bruiser, a father figure. Because Bruiser's real-life father passed away when, when Dick was 16 years old. And except for a short period, this is when Wilbur and Dick were promoting, were invading Detroit and running up against the Sheik, uh, he had a very impressive run in St. Louis, uh, being a top challenger, uh, the outstanding St. Louis wrestling author, Larry Madison, pointed out that Dick the Bruiser challenged for the NWA heavyweight champion 18 times in his career, averaging over 11,000 people in attendance, at the, either at the Keel Auditorium or the Checkerdome. And uh, all the other people in that top draw are, would, would all be the NWA champions. But Bruiser and Johnny Valentine were the top draws as challengers. And you can't have a successful card unless you have a meaningful and believable challenger to the champ. Sure. Right, guys? Absolutely. I mean, you know, that's what, uh, in my opinion, obviously, Bruiser held many titles that were below the NWA uh, title and the tag team titles. But, uh, you know, that's what draws the fans is uh, to see a credible opponent come in to face the champion because if they're not credible, then there's, you know, there's, there's no reason for the fan to believe that they've got a chance of taking the belt. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you, do you sure. discuss uh, uh, much about the relationship and the teaming of Bruiser and Crusher in your book? Yes. Uh, I have some very personal quotes from Larry Lasowski, the Crusher's son, who was an AWA referee and uh, promoter and several uh, um, medium-sized cities over the years. You know, in in 1955, in Gary, Indiana, uh, that's the first, in actually September 23rd, 1955, Scott Teal found a newspaper art at Bruiser versus the Crusher <laughs> in 1955 in Gary, Indiana. And they wrestled in a lot of different cities as opponents. Uh, in Indianapolis, and uh, hey, and then the next time, and then in 1956, uh, September 14th, this match is on YouTube from the International Amphitheater. It was a six-man tag match. Bruiser, Reggie Lasowski, which is who's the crusher, and, and the other Lasowski, against Ganya, Snyder, and Raka. That match is on YouTube. Go search that out. It was like a 35-minute bout. That's the first time that I could figure out Bruiser and Crusher were on the same team. But, of course, as a tag team champion, which was first won the AWA version in 1963 against the Kalmakot brothers, there were 
some outstanding tag team combinations that just shook the wrestling world. <coughs> Again, Bruce and the Crusher. Namely, the Blackjacks, Hennig and Race, Mad Dog and Butcher Vishan. Sure. The Chain Game, which was Don Fargo and Kenny McMullen, and Bachwinkle and Stevens. Those are the the major tag team forces, I thought, against the Bruiser and the Crusher. I would watch you think about how long they teamed. The Bruiser and the Crusher <clears throat> go back from, uh, like he, like uh, Richard just said, the Kalmakoffs in the early 60s, all the way up to they wrestled the Road Warriors in the early 80s. Oh, oh yeah. That tells you how long and what a long-lasting team was. I can't think of any team that weren't uh, that lasted that long. I mean, even great teams like the Kangaroos traded. You know, it was Costello and various partners. You know, there's not a team that I can think of that wrestled full time. You know, or they, even though they they still did their single stuff, but but I don't think they were ever apart more than six eight months at a time. No, you know the, that's a uh, that's a long lasting tag team. Also, they also did that. They had tours of Japan as well mm-hmm. as tag teams. The final time they teamed up, it was it was actually a six man tag match. It was in September 1985. I believe the Crusher was already 60 years old, but it was Bruiser, Crusher, and Baron Von Raschke against Ivan, the late Ivan Koloff, Nikita Koloff, and Crusher Khrushchev. That was the last hurrah for Dick the Bruiser and the Crusher in Chicago. They were maybe on the seventh or eighth ma- I mean, match on the card. They weren't even in the mid-card. You know, but at White Sox Park there, you know, that was the same card where they main evented for a lot of years. You know, in the, in the big ballpark shows. But that was the last time, that was the last hurrah for the Bruiser and Crusher in Chicago, which I think was Probably they had more matches in Chicago. And, uh, of course, the way they ignited the crowd. Uh, I'm sure you gentlemen have have heard, what was the big chant that wrestling fans would yell out and stomp in unison? There's three words. Yeah. You, know what, you, you know what that word? You know what that word? Uh, I do. We well, want blood. blood. Yeah, we want blood. And, and, you know, in front of your seats of the amphitheater was a big sheet metal panel that prevented you from falling over into the next row. People would stamp their feet on these big sheet metal things in unison, all 11,000 people. It was the most raucous noise you ever heard. That uh, that we want blood chant was a, uh, and I may be wrong, Richard. You you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I, I've always assumed that that was a a bit of mind control from Bob Luce 
Um, from his, wow. I, I've seen various programs that he's put together for when when oh. he was involved with oh, Chicago, yeah. and every one of them was something about bloodthirsty and murder and all this. The guy was yeah, just he was a street. hype machine. He was, and uh, he would also hype. You know, starting in nineteen October nineteen seventy one, he would host a wrestling program on WSMS Channel 44 in Chicago. We'd have a little studio segments, we'd show matches, and the way he would hype up those matches. Next Saturday at the amphitheater, we're going to bring Boozer in the town. We're going to bring Crusher in the town. And they're going to face those blackjacks with Bobby Heenan locked in that cage. There's no way out. I mean, that was the style. <laughs> Richard, let me ask he, you a he, question. Um, go ahead, Jerry. Uh, Jerry. It, it, uh, I mean, for uh, and I agree with everything you've said about him. I mean, for the career that man had, I mean, he was probably, I mean, from when he really got all that publicity and his notoriety, he was probably in the more demand than the NWA World Heavyweight Champion. I mean, Dick the Bruiser, I mean. When and he for was the long run that he had, all the success and the promotions and everything he did, and at the end, was he a wealthy man financially? Uh, well, when I used to drive past his his what what uh, was said to be a five thousand square foot home in Indianapolis on multiple acres, he was well. He was the owner. He was the owner, co-owner of wrestling promotions in Chicago and Indianapolis. Let's put this in. All right. Do I do I see his bank account? Do I see his brokerage statements? We I can't no, do I mean, that. But when you no, I know that, that. And, I and you didn't say that either. But I'm just saying. But let's put it in this perspective. As of 1971, he co-owned wrestling promotions in. The second largest market, Chicago. Fifth largest market, Detroit. Eleventh largest market, Indianapolis. And twelfth largest market, Milwaukee. He had a share in Milwaukee, plus wrestling all over. So, uh, yes, above the average, yeah. Was he in the upper 5% of income in the United States? You know, uh, if and by the way, if you get the book, Bruiser, The World's Most Dangerous Wrestler, published by Crowbar Press, and that's where you can get it at www.crowbarpress. Little, little promo thrown in there. There we go. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, on page 168, I, I detail for you what are the percentages, the payoff percentages. Uh, I managed to get my hands on 10 wrestling cards in Chicago from 1974 to 1977. And with the payouts, okay? So then I started slotting, okay, who's in the main event of this, okay? Who's on the, who are the semi-main events? You know, I'd rank them out. Well, 
uh, of course, and I'm sure uh, all of you are aware of the 30% rule, where professional wrestlers roughly get 30% of the box office. The, uh, the wrestlers as a pool will get an allocation of about 30%. Well, here are the ranges of the percentages, you know, the percent of revenue. If Dick the Bruiser was the only one of those three owners on the wrestling card at the amphitheater, that could have been because Wilbur Snyder's on a card in Indianapolis and Vern Gagne is out in Denver with the AWA, Bruiser would get 6% of the gross. On that same night, when Bruiser and, and when Bruiser's in the main event solo lane, Gagne and Snyder would get 1.5%. Just, you know, not even, they didn't even have to appear, appear on the card. Right. Uh, uh, now, when the owners, when there were other owners on the card, each owner got 3%. Now, and you know, they and there's they made some adjustments. You know, when someone like the Sheik or Ray Stevens was in the main event, or Nick Bachwinkle, those guys could get could get four percent. You know, they could get a uh, a larger piece, but now, of course, never more than the owners who are on that same card. What do you think a non-owner opening match manager got? He got twenty-five basis points. He got 0.25%. An opening match wrestler got 0.50. So it wouldn't be hard for those promotion owners uh, to get very wealthy when they're going to be paying themselves 3 to 6% of the box office gross. And, hey, listen, they're the ones that made the big investment, uh, bought the shares from Fred Kohler or put took the financial risk in Indianapolis of promoting cards and buying TV time, not guaranteeing that your promotion is going to take off. So that's, uh, there's a little bit about money there. No, I was just, I mean, I just, just, for, just from his, just his rustling alone, you know, <laughs> and, and the way he promoted himself. I mean, I, and I'm sure he was a smart man. I was just wondering, mm-hmm. I mean, he had to have been, you know, well, I, you know, I beat to death the concept of Bruiser being in main events since his second year in the business. And you do that for 25 years, being in main events all over the country. The only, the only places I figured out where he didn't wrestle, what the, the three t- territories where he didn't wrestle, to my knowledge, well, it's four. I don't think he ever went to Houston. He was never in Mid-Atlantic. He was never in Toronto, and he was never in Portland. But everything else, he had some type of short run. Plus, being in being a co-owner in those pretty big, you know, when I mentioned him being in the second, fifth, eleventh, and twelfth market, the only other promotion with any kind of coverage of that. Is the WWWF who were who who were in the first, fourth, seventh, ninth, and sixteenth largest market. So you can, I, you know, I think that's important to consider. He was co-owner in 
four big cities. Yeah, I understand all that. I mean, I, I was I was just wondering, you know, I was talking about like businessman-wise and, you know, did he have other investments or whatever, you know. Oh, I, I know he made the money, you know. I mean, mm-hmm. I know guys in my era that make millions and they can't buy a Volkswagen. That's new yeah. right? He uh He owned condos in the Clearwater, Tampa area that he would rent out starting in the late 70s, investment property. So, yeah, yeah he did that. Yeah, I'm sure he's a smart businessman. Uh, he was uh, he was living or staying in Florida when he passed away, was he not? Yes. Uh, lifting weights and a blood vessel burst in his esophagus, and that was it. He was 62 years old. It was what happened on Sunday, November 10th, 1991. And uh, so, yeah, that the the it was a sitting and fit ending that that he went out lifting weights because he's I don't no. think he's the type to sit around and play shuffleboard or bat no. or cribbage or you know he always wanted he always was the bruiser. In, almost in his real life, in a lot of ways. Yeah, he's a I, I, yeah I know that 62, I was speaking with Mike, uh, you know, is, is is not, today somebody 62 is not the age that somebody was 62 at the time of his death. But still, 62 was rather a young age for somebody like the Bruiser to pass away, and I think a lot of people were really surprised by that. Yes. I mean, a lot of people uh, commented in December 1990. In fact, he was already, let's see, did he have his, yes, he had his his 61st birthday by then, or something. And he was a main, he was a referee in, at Starkey 1990. Uh, at the Keel Auditorium, the main event was Sting against the Black Scorpion. Scorpion, of course, Ric Flair. But, you know, it was hard for him to kneel down and count the wrestler's shoulders down. He sort of waddled. He was so, you know, you know when, he don't, when you don't wrestle anymore, and I assume maybe you still eat the same amount. It was it was pretty sad to see that. You know, I was, that was the next next thing I was going to ask you. Somebody that was somebody that you followed as you did with him, and he was uh, to, to say the least a hero. Was it difficult for you to see him in the ring like that? Uh, especially, uh, where it really bothered me. And at the time, this is the early 1980s when he is over 50 years old. I mean, and so are other main event people at the card: Wilbur, Moose, Cholak, Bobo. And you know, there is your favorite wrestler, there, Jerry. Yep. And <laughs> and they they are only drawing hundreds of people at the, at an Indianapolis National Guard armory. And at the same time, here in Chicago, I could see 
the WWF cards on USA Cable Network from Madison Square Garden. I could see the WWF TV shows from on Sagosicus, New Jersey, and Georgia Championship Wrestling on the Superstation. So I'm seeing these feuds with Snooka in Morocco or, you know, or uh, Sergeant Slaughter against Pat Patterson or the Tommy Rich versus Buzz Sawyer or the Freebirds against DiBiase and Junkshard Dog, you know. And, and, you know, I, I gave up on this Bruiser show. I mean, did that make me I'm not a wild fan? I guess I am. But I'm no, I'm no fool when I see the production that came out of New York and Georgia in the early 80s. And, of course, you know, yeah, Bruiser and Snyder were the owners. And what do owners? Owners have the prerogative to say, who's going to work? How is the show going to evolve? What's the storyline going to be? Well, guess what the storyline was. Someone sneaks attacks Bruiser, and then he has the revenge match. You know, it's, you know the cycle. This keeps going. Yes. I, just, I lost interest. I, I did not even want to waste the new technology of VHS tape on this. It was so sad. So, yeah, that's when I really started to feel sad, even in the early 80s. I didn't even see Starcade 90 until decades after. Well, it it was the changing of the guard with uh, cable television and the superstation and Mm -hmm. the WWF becoming the the WWF becoming the WWF and things of that nature. And McMahon Jr. uh, taking over everybody and uh, either, you know, buy a sellout now or, you know, uh, you're going to be crying to the bank a little later because you're not going to have anything to sell. And uh, there were just a a few promotions left that were still trying to go up against McMahon. And uh, so, so, you know, and he was uh, pulling no punches as to what it would take to just put these promotions out of business by that point. Mm-hmm. Richard. And, you know, Richard. obviously, yeah, oh, Bruiser, like, okay, you know, he, and then when Wilbur retired, Bruiser was the sole owner. And guess guess who was booked in the main events all the time? But it <laughs> was, you know, it was, it was, you know, the proverbial show was over. But I still say, what a run it was. For all those decades, you know, it is, you know, wrestling, I guess it is a young man's business. It is that. Yeah. I haven't missed anybody yet, you know. Richard, this is Jerry, and I appreciate you being on our show, but I'm going to have to depart. Nice talking to you, and I appreciate your, uh, your contribution and for having me on the program. Well, you don't have to leave just because I'm leaving, but I, I, I've got to go. Okay. All right, Jerry, you have a good weekend, bud. Talk to you, Jerry. Bye, bye, bye. And uh, I'm Thank right you. behind him, but I want to say once again, Richard, that uh, we you were you were very interesting. We were uh, glad to have you uh, with us. Mike booked another good one, and Mike, you and Bobby, and uh, the rest of the crew tomorrow. Hope you have a safe trip uh, down to Mobile, and uh, give us all the stories when you come back. 
All right, Jay, you you take care of yourself. Glad to okay, see you, Okay. Yeah, it was great to have you back with us. So. All right. Thank you very much. Good night, gentlemen. You too. Yeah, it's uh, you know, you you, and you know, what you're saying is right, and you know, a lot of those territories started falling. I mean, we here in Georgia kind of got a taste of it with with the Sheik because Barnett was trying to do business with the Sheik, and uh, he kind of uh, Sheik kind of screwed himself out of that deal. But uh, so Barnett just basically took his territory or what was left of his territory. Yeah. Sheik hadn't been running in years, but, you know. But, uh, yeah, and, and, and Bruce, that's the one thing that, that – go ahead. No, Bruiser spent a few years trying to run opposite the Sheik himself. Yeah. Now, now the Sheik, you know, brought, uh, would then r- – run shows on the same night Bruiser's boys would come to town. The whole thing lasted about two and a half years and, uh, you know, it was it was over and they shook hands and then they appeared on each other's cards. You know? So, uh, uh, it was even, yeah, always interesting when wrestlers start, uh, Invading each other ter- each other's territories, you know that that which uh, happened you know, off and on during the sixties and seventies. Mm-hmm. Hey, you know, yeah, I'm usually of this. No, go ahead. No, we, that usually what happened in, in those ends is, and I'm sure if you look at the especially when Bruiser tried it in the early 70s, running against against the Sheik, you know, the NWA kind of stepped up. Same thing happened here in Georgia when Ann Gunkel, you know, split off from mm-hmm. the NWA office after her husband passed away. You know, the NWA would, would load up the NWA promoter's cards with guys from all over the country. Same thing happened in Los Angeles when Ganya was trying to run, you know, mm-hmm. out there against uh, um LaBelle. Mike LaBelle. Yeah. And and you know who was Ganya's opponent in the main event on September 6, 1969, at the Forum in Los Angeles? I'm sure it was Bruiser, wasn't it? It was, yes. Yeah. No, they're very good. Yeah, because, I mean, Bruiser had not been, was, was, you know, a well-known name in Los Angeles, you know, not terribly, you know, five or six years earlier. But uh, so I'm sure he was still a draw, and uh, you know it's just it it kind of I think out of all those, Bruiser lasted in Detroit, like you said, two and a half years. Um, Gunkle Sports lasted here in Georgia, almost exactly two years, and uh, so it's it's hard to go up against. you know that mm-hmm. conglomeration that the NWA was when they can pull yeah. talent from all over the place and and load up cards and mm-hmm. uh, and draw. Mm-hmm. Well, Mike, you know what I prepared here? If you have a couple more minutes. Oh, absolutely. I, I I prepared a list of what I consider were the biggest all-time cards for six major Midwest cities that Bruiser 
participated in in his career. And maybe I'll go over these. And yeah, uh, I start. Go ahead. I'll start off with Chicago, September first, nineteen seventy-two, at Soldier Field. There is the home of the Chicago Bears then and still still now. The main event in the cage, the Bruiser, the Crusher, against Blackjack Mulligan and Lanza, and Bobby Heenan. The referee was Jersey Joe Walcott, boxing champion of the past. So, you know, that's sort of like a big, that was one of the biggest cards in Chicago, in my opinion, as far as, you know, the card also had Vern Gagne against Ivan Koloff. But that was the, uh, that was one of the biggest Chicago cards, I think, because it was at Soldier Field. Uh, yeah. Bruiser and Ganya and Snyder, I think, promoted. I think the number is approaching 190 cards at the International Amphitheater from 1966 to 1983. So that's quite an accomplishment, too. I always thought it was. Yeah, no, yeah, they didn't sell out every one, but that was quite a run for a wrestling promotion. Okay, so that was number one. That was the first one on my list. The next was St. Louis, the Checkerdome Arena, June 10th, 1982. NWA champion Ric Flair defends against Dick the Bruiser. That was probably Bruiser's biggest payoff of all all time, probably $5,800 for 20 minutes' work. But that was – and he was still – even though he was over 50 years old, he was really... I was going to say, that's amazing that he was still credible as an NWA challenger, you know, in 1982, when he probably got his his first world title shot, you know, 25 years earlier. Yeah. It's amazing. Yeah. The third city on the list is Milwaukee. This is August 4th, 1956. This was, at its time second largest gross in professional wrestling. Of course, its record was broken years later. But at County Stadium, the home of the Milwaukee Braves, it was Dick the Bruiser and Hans Schmidt versus Reggie and Stan Lithowski. Also in the main event was Wilbur Snyder versus Vern Gagne with the referee Jack Dempsey. So that was the big, that's the big Milwaukee card that sticks out. Let's jump back to Detroit. This is June 21st, 1961. Tiger Stadium. Of course, there was rain that day. They didn't, they didn't draw a lot, but it was Dick, the, the culmination of Dick the Bruiser versus Bobo Brazil, who had had many feuding matches at the Olympia earlier that year. I think that was probably the last time they were opponents because they really became good friends uh, in real life, you know. Let's let's go to Minneapolis now, December 26, 1964. There was a match, a six-man tag match with Harley Race, Larry Hennig, and Dick the Bruiser against Wilbur Snyder, Reggie Parks and Vern Gagne. Well, 
Hennig and Race let Bruiser hung him out to dry and wouldn't wouldn't cooperate on tagging, and that is how Bruiser turned babyface in the right. AWA. And of course, he vowed, "I'm going to find Crusher, and I'm going to look at every, in every bar and every honky tonk in Milwaukee, and I'm going to go recruit Crusher." to be my partner against Penning and Race. So that that was the big match I fought in Minneapolis. And finally, Indianapolis, September 21st, 1974, at Market Square Arena. It was one of the first events in this arena. It was Dick the Bruiser and Bobby Heenan against the Sheik and Eddie Creechman. What do you think happened, Mike? Well, I'm sure Heenan turned on him. Yes. And, of course, though, in real life, that was the last time uh, Heenan worked full-time for Dick the Bruiser. You know, their their squabble over working conditions and money just erupted, and that was it for Heenan uh, as a full-time worker in Indianapolis. He went up working to the AWA for Vern, he may have had a few short spot appearances at various Christmas cards in the late uh, 70s because Heenan's mom still lived in Indianapolis and Bruiser would give him a Christmas uh, 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 appearance on the Bruiser card. Uh, but anyway, that was those I think were the really standout events in Bruiser's in those key Midwest, because I understand maybe in some southern territories or the nor- some northeast territories, you didn't have much exposure. You had limited exposure to Dick the Bruiser. So, and a, he still drew. Bread and butter. He, he, um, he, was, uh, he had the distinction of being in the main event on the very first card, wrestling card, Held in Mobile, Alabama, at what is now called okay. the Mobile Civic Center. It was called the Mobile Municipal Auditorium. It had just opened in 1964, the very first wrestling card ever held there. And this is a 10,000-seat auditorium in a city that, in 1964, the population was probably under 100,000. Mm-hmm. Um, it was not a sellout, but it was close to it. But he was the main event against Lee Fields. So he maintained it in the very first card held in that auditorium in Mobile, Alabama, of all places. Yeah, and that that promotion ran weekly, I think, right? Yes, yes. Yeah, which, you know, in the Midwest here, that's in the, even in the 60s or 70s, that's unheard of. And it's amazing in so many of the southern ter- territories, there was so much interest in wrestling that they could run weekly, you know? Yeah, and in some to some areas like Georgia and the Carolinas, when they were really hot, they were running two and three times a night. Tennessee, uh, oh, yeah. our friend Bill Bowman, the, uh, the late Bill Bowman, talked about when when he and Joe Turner were in Tennessee, they ran sometimes four cities a night. You know, mm-hmm. because to the Tennessee territory covered parts of Kentucky that Bruiser didn't have. Um, you know, parts of Alabama that the Fields didn't have. Uh, you know, I think later on they bought. I, it was it wasn't until the seventies when Jarrett 
took Memphis that they started running Evansville, Indiana. That was mm-hmm. that was one of Bruiser's territories as well. But they went into parts of Missouri, parts of Mississippi. The the, the Goulas ter- Goulas Welsh territory was huge, and they they ran you know four and five nights a week, uh, or four or five towns a night. And Bill Bowman was talking about he'd run into somebody, you know, that he had known from another territory and say, when did you get in the territory? And the guy told him six months ago. They just never crossed paths. Sure. That must have been a logistical nightmare, booking buildings and trying to give the wrestlers a, a decent pattern, you know, so they didn't have, oh, Trust so me, they didn't care about the pattern. <laughs> the logistic nightmare was on the on the boys trying to trying to make it to the towns and the TV tapings on time. Just here in Georgia on Saturdays was sometimes just crazy. Bobby can tell you. I mean, you had you had TBS tapings in the morning. You had Columbus TV live in the afternoons. You ran Chattanooga that that Saturday night, you know, and sometimes a, a spot show around Atlanta in between. I mean. Mm-hmm. You 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 made you, you earned your money for, for sure. Uh, <laughs> yeah, Bruiser. Now here's the thing: he didn't even have he in one month. Maybe he would do two Indianapolis, a Fort Wayne, an Elkhart, a Hammond, maybe a Terre Haute. I mean, it wasn't as intense working for the Bruiser, and you could most of those wrestlers can live in Indianapolis and shoot out two hours north or whatever it is to those cities and come back home the same night. That's how, you know, that's how he did it. And, of course, then you may even get a shot in Chicago. You know, so yeah, I know that, that uh, you mentioned Prince Pullins earlier. Prince came in. The only yeah. territory that I know Prince Pullins ever worked on top in was the Mobile Territory. Um, oh, okay. Don Don Fargo uh, suggested to Bob Kelly to bring him in when Bob Kelly was booking down there, because uh, Fargo had worked with him uh, when he was part of the chain gang up there, so he mm-hmm. he knew of uh, of pulling. So they brought him in. He main evented. Uh, he brought him in as a babyface. He was he was the probably the top babyface for four or five months. Then they turned him heel, and they were planning on pushing him as a heel for as long as it would go. He, um, his first big card, he was booked to team with uh, with Bobby Shane on the Christmas card in Mobile. You know, he he pulled a no show. He went home to Indianapolis. He'd rather wow. he'd rather work. You know, opening card in Indianapolis and main event moment. Of course, I don't know what the money was involved as far as that. He may have not been making any money in Mobile. But the trips and everything were a little bit, you know, more here because they ran they ran six nights a week in three different states just in that small Gulf Coast territory. And they could be home every night, but still, that's a lot of road, you know, road travel. And mm-hmm. uh, so, yeah, and he never came back. Uh, Mickey Doyle was another one that that you know was worked on top in, in Mobile, and you know of course he was he was from Detroit. Um, I don't know if he ever worked worked for Bruiser or not, but um, you know 
once he came back, uh, he was there in 72 and then 73, and then he never came back. I mean, there was a lot of guys. Uh, in fact, I, I don't know. Did you ever talk to Bob Kelly? Did Scott ever hook you yes. up with Bob Kelly? Yes, I did. One of my you know, associates. Bob, uh, Bob yes. left Mobile in uh, the end of 75. He was he moved back to Louisville, which is where he was from, because he his mother had gotten sick, so he moved, left Mobile and went back to Louisville. And he was splitting his time. He'd work for Goulas and he'd work for Bruiser. But uh, he um, when he came back as the Booker in Mobile in '76, he was he brought Bruiser in. He was planning on Bruiser coming in and working. Uh, just Mobile for like two months, and uh, Rocky McGuire, who was the other booker on the Dothan end of the territory, got in Lee Fields' ear and said, uh, you know, Kelly's been working up there with Bruiser. They're trying to steal your territory. And for some reason, Lee listened to Rocky, and they, they, they cut that whole program with Bruiser short. He only made one appearance the whole time. Mm-hmm. But uh, uh, it's weird. It was, well, yeah, I tell you, though, you know, when you look back at, you know, Dick the Bruiser's career, which, you know, he was really one of the top ex-NFL football players, too. I mean, the, the, I mean, he achieved more in wrestling than NFL, but he, was one, he made a great transition, you know. Yeah. You know, so did Wahoo and Ernie Ladd, but, yeah, he... Uh, you could also say about Dick the Bruiser, he was one of the best brawlers of all time. You know, he's in that brawler category like Stan Hansen and Bruiser Brody and the Crusher and those type of guys. And Bruiser main evented over four decades. You know, you can't deny that. No, there's no, I mean, he was just, you know, and and still to this day, probably more so in the in the Midwest. But I mean, you, you think about it, in the early '80s, uh, if you were a David Letterman fan, David Letterman was from Indianapolis, so you yeah. know he talked about Bruiser at least once a week. He'd bring up Bruiser's yeah. name. And, you know, and this Bruiser is this is long the before the national expansion and and Hulk Hogan was yeah. ever heard of. So you know, yeah, Bruiser. Uh, made an appearance in July 1980 on David Letterman. I haven't seen a tape of it yet, but uh, certain uh, documents indicate that happened. And I should add, as a promoter, it was under Dick the Bruiser and Wilbur Snyder that the Black Shack and the Valiant Brothers were put together for the first time. And we know how they... Uh, skyrocketed after they left Indianapolis. Yep. And so, That's very true. you know, those those are the legacies of Dick the Bruiser. You know, he had believability and belligerence, domination, explosiveness, rampage, unpredictability, and those are those are written by Scott Teal, by the way, my publisher. And the I was going to say, it sounds more like Do- uh, Bob Luce. And <laughs> yeah. Oh, no, but yeah, we, I, listen, it's the same principle. Yeah, uh, exactly. Again, uh, the book is available on www.crowbarpress.com. 
www.thinkingmindsetcoach.com. It is also available in a Kindle version on Amazon. But, but you only, you don't get a, hard, a paperback book on Amazon. It's only in the Kindle, Kindle version. And I want to thank right. Bobby, too, because during the years preparing the book, I sent Bobby uh, a question or two, and he responded to me. Uh, and he told me about that big card with Sputnik Monroe at the racetrack. I always appreciated that. Oh, you're more than welcome. I'm glad. What little I knew, I'm glad it helped. Yeah, and I'm trying to think of the preacher from Indiana. He used to be a Georgia Wrestling. He's the one that gave me your uh, email, and I quoted Eddie, uh, Mr. Goddard, in the, the Reverend Goddard in the book, too. Yeah, on page If there, there was anything to know about the Monroes, Danny was the man. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it was. So anyway, like you said, this was, I, may, I wish I would have started this book 15 years before I did. Because by the time I had this idea, Bob Luce was already dead. So was the Crusher. So was Wilbur. So was the Sheik. So was Bobo. So was Leo Namolini. So was Ray Stevens. So was Fred Blassie. So was Sam Meneker. But I did get a lot of support from, you know, wrestlers. You, you know, you name it. Johnny Valiant. Renee Goulet, Sergeant Jack Goulet. Over 250 people were interviewed, including yeah, dozens did. of his schoolmates who I tracked down. Who, uh, yeah, it's an amazingly you know, so researched book. I, it's it's probably one of the most in depth, most in depthly researched books I, that I've read, and it's it's okay. amazing that you were able to re- to reach those people. I just I can't imagine the logistics involved in that. Uh, well, I I traveled from West Coast to Santa Monica, east to New York City, all those big Midwest cities to libraries. And went to the Indiana State Library, the University of Notre Dame Pfeffer Collection. I appreciate the uh, the acknowledgement you did about two years ago to the late James Zordani, the Claw Master. Oh yeah, because he was a big. Jim was a good guy. And your program recognized him. The week he passed away, so I always really yeah. appreciate that. Yeah, Jim was a good friend. Good friend. Well, and Richard, we're going to have to wrap it up, bud. But I appreciate yeah. you joining us, man. This is this has been great. This has been uh, absolutely great, and, and and I hope your book just just keeps keeps selling, and I, I highly recommend it. And uh, hey, this is, I'm into the second year. I'm going to keep doing this even this year, too. So, uh, And I'm going to, uh, you know, there's, there's, as long as there's people that are interested in old-school wrestling, I hope I will have an audience. Oh, definitely. They're, they're out there. They're out there. And, and what, I, what I'm trying to do is make Dick the Bruiser uh, something important to the people who weren't in the AWA and who weren't in the WWA territories. 
know, because they didn't see him as much. That's true. Good night. Well, there's our there's our ten yeah. bell count. So, Richard, I appreciate you joining us. Uh, thanks to Jay West, Jerry Oates, Bobby Simmons, and uh, we'll uh, we'll get together next week and uh, do this again. But Richard, you're you're welcome to be back on with us anytime. Just let me know. Be glad to Thank have you, you back on. Thanks, All righty. Good night, everybody. Okay. See you in the morning about nine, sir. All right. Sounds good. Take care. Good night. We thank you for listening to this broadcast, a production brought to you by the GWH Radio Network. Stay tuned to GeorgiaWrestlingHistory.com for the latest information on upcoming events and more. As always, we thank you for your continued support.